Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, we grow in relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. This series is the Blood Covenant. Here we'll be studying Luke 22, 23, and 24, seeing everything from the Passover to the institution of the Lord's Supper, the cross of Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit being promised. And so we hope that you join in with us, that you subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday. Luke chapter 22, we're just continuing walking through this wonderful gospel getting closer and closer to this moment of atonement and the cross of Jesus Christ. And now we get the a bit of a climax, I guess, so to speak, uh, if there were one before the cross, and that is whenever Jesus is detained, uh, finally the betrayal is fulfilled And so we're going to be reading in Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. So if you're there, you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude... And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far? And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." Father, we want to come to you this morning. Lord, we know our need. Uh, We know the salvation offered through the Son, Jesus Christ. And yet still today, many of us seasoned Christians here this morning, and yet we struggle to know how to navigate the hour of darkness. Father, as we look at the events that that, that culminate in your coming and your dying in our place, we ask that these truths are just pressed upon us today that we know how to live in light of your death. The way that we just sang, Father, that we would would see this moment of history impact the way that we navigate 
the most terrible of trials. God, indeed, we are in an era in which this word offers us a superb help. And so, Father, meet us. Meet us this morning. Grant us your understanding. Let someone among us hear you speak today. And Father, that the saints here would be equipped to go to battle this week. That the saints here this morning would be equipped to share a gospel news with those that you place around them this week. That mothers and fathers would be equipped this morning to know how to disciple their children and, and, and minister day in and day out without exhaustion because of the grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's always interesting just walking through a passage of Scripture, giving ourselves time to just soak up some of those little details and to see why this Word is so important. We, we know these events and we know it's a dark time and yet we believe as Christians that this is God's Word and it was appointed for, for our teaching. So why is it that all of these events are recorded in just the way that they are? We can still learn from these today. This is narrative. We know that this is to fit, fulfill all that happened and, and, and Jesus going to the cross. And yet we do well to take our time and glean from these events in order to apply them today. One of the first things that I notice when we look at these events, we notice this betrayal of Judas. We've talked about this before. We know even at the Lord's Supper that Jesus saw this in the, in the making and, and now is that hour of fulfillment in the betrayal of the life of Judas. And we see that this betrayal happens under the cover of darkness. We know it's night. We've already read how the apostles were, were tired and uh, really all, just all that occurs and, and uh, it's a long night preceding the events of the crucifixion. And this event happens in seclusion from all the crowds, uh, the hearers, the listeners uh, that would often hear Jesus preach and they would see this ministry in the day. So many times in his ministry, uh, the priests and the scribes, the same band these uh, of people, the elders in the, in the Jewish council and Sanhedrin, they wanted to take him and yet they wouldn't for fear of the people. Well, now all that's gone. It's under the cover of night in the absence of all the hearers that they would look to pursue Jesus. And before we move too fast, I just want to think about that. Isn't that the nature of the kingdom of darkness? So often, sin and temptation, these greatest opportunities come under the cover of darkness. 
That's telling. You know, in government, it's we see that whenever it's uh, you know secret meetings in the early morning or the late night. You know, when the rest of of the the voters or legislators can't be there. In corporations, these are happen in the way of closed door deals. You know. Uh, Entire corporations are even taken or, or bought and, and agreements made. When the life of Christians, it's no different. Sin finds its greatest opportunities in the darkness when we find ourselves alone. Whenever, whenever the world doesn't look upon us and we're not protecting our image, whenever we're left by ourselves or behind a closed door and I just think it's important for us to slow down and realize that know that out of the gate so that we might prepare ourselves for those sort of attacks realize when you count yourself alone when you're in that point of exhaustion or or, or you're you're in the night or any other time or when the door is closed when you're left to yourself when there's no accountability that's when the attack is going to happen I see this in almost every circumstance that I have opportunity to counsel is beware of those moments. Jesus knew this. This is why he told his apostles, stay awake, be watchful. The hour's at hand. You know what is coming or I know what's coming. Wake up. Because it's in those moments they're separated. This is when it's going down. This is where the war is waged. Jesus knew that his betrayal and his betrayers were not compassionate to his fatigue. They don't care. Sin, the devil, the world doesn't care if you're tired. They don't care if you feel broken or in need. This is the opportunity for attack. You know, we see even in Jesus' own temptation, and he's left just bound by God's word, and he has to leave Jesus' presence. Well, he doesn't just leave defeated. He leaves and waits for a more opportune time. This is one of those times. In the midst of exhaustion, fatigue, and darkness, and seclusion. And so, don't expect for your trial to just go away. I don't know if you're in one of those lulls or in that low point of life or ministry, but now is whenever the battle rages on not when you're feeling better. These events surround, surrounding Jesus' betrayal have so much to teach us. Now, again, they do happen to fulfill the promise of redemption, the atonement that happens uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus said, look, I chose the 12 and, did not, and it's not one of you, you know, the son of the devil or one of you, the betrayer, of course, yes. There's, there's prophecy that needs to occur. Christ had to go to the cross or we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. We know this. And yet the world has not changed. The devil has not changed his methods. 
It's in these points, these points of our own weakness when we, when we are apt to let our guard down that we need to train ourselves to be ready, to be constant, ready in season, out of season. These times when no one sees or hears us, they will be most tempted to yield to sin. And so I just, as I try to apply this as we walk through, think of that. Ready yourself. Think of those times when you're at your weakest, those times you're left alone. Uh, whatever. If it's, if it's with technology, phone, in my view, I think that this is the danger in leaving ourselves out of the church for so long. And it's dangerous. Be aware of your actions, your thoughts, your evil heart. It's not hidden from the Lord. In Sunday school, we've been talking about the omniscience of God, God knowing everything. He knows all of our deeds and and there's a great irony in the way that this sin and temptation works. As Stephen Sharnock put it, he said, men will commit that in the presence of God, which they would be afraid or ashamed to do before the eye of man. Remain watchful in these times when the enemy is most likely to attack. That's true in sin. It was true even in this betrayal, this hour of darkness. This darkness is joined by an ironic friendship of the deceiver. So if you're following the the points on the back of the bulletin, the friendly deceiver, look at the way Judas chooses to betray Jesus. To betray the Son of Man. He's already sold him out for his 30 pieces of silver. The deed's done. He leads the way. And yet Judas wants to come forward with a kiss. Have you ever wondered why? Why would he betray him with a kiss? I mean, he's done what he needs to do. He's led, led the, uh, the captors to, to come and take him. Why, why doesn't Judas confess his unbelief? Why doesn't he say, Jesus, look, man, I'm tired of living this life of a disciple. What have we got to show for it? Why doesn't he say, look, this is nothing. I gave up everything and barely stole enough out of the purse to make do. What have you provided? Why doesn't he just point it out? Why doesn't he show or even try to rebuke Jesus? How could you come out against this this Jewish system in the courts, the Jewish courts? Why, why, Why doesn't he just blow the lid on all of this? Why isn't he honest? I mean, it's already over. What's left to gain? Why greet Jesus with a kiss? I think this teaches us something as well. It really is like almost every other circumstance. When we see this hour of darkness, this reign of darkness that comes through sin, it's always this way. Adam and Eve were enticed with a beautiful fruit. 
The serpent minimized the consequences. He made promising or gave promising results. You know, they weren't reminded of the truth or holiness or their relationship to God or each other. They weren't reminded of the way these false promises contradict the realities of the life they were leading in submission to God. But boy, it was a good-looking fruit. Scriptures say it was pleasing to the eyes, looked good to eat, and desirable to make one wise. It was a fitting metaphor. I don't know if any of you all are Chronicles of Narnia fans, you know, C.S. Lewis. But I think it was fitting in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that Edmund was uh, enticed to betray his brothers and sisters and, and even the, you know, the protagonist Aslan with the temptation of a sweet Turkish delight. I think that was a fitting metaphor. You know, think of some of these other examples in Scripture. One I often use in marriage or counseling and other times is Proverbs 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Her lips drip honey, speech smoother than oil. Don't discount those, those little details, those characteristics. It is always enticing. Sin is always enticing. The reason temptation works is because we like it. It's because you like it. It's not because it's so grotesque to you. You're not that holy. See the way that sin seeks to console the one that's being tempted while she holds a dagger in her hand. Think of the allure of Delilah while she was plotting against Samson the entire time. Satan, we know, is full of darkness and yet scriptures tell us he disguises himself as an angel of light. should come as no surprise to us then that the greatest enemies of the church often call themselves Christian. They might even be the most active members of a church for a time. This looks a lot of different ways. Some of these claim to be Christian or that they're actually doing Christianity right. Uh... The whole time they deride anyone or any church that smells or looks or anything like biblical Christianity. They deride it as hypocritical. There's lots of churches that meet every Sunday and draw people by the masses. in the name of, of love and equality. They deny all of Scripture. Even the events that we're talking about, we're studying massive amounts of Scripture for weeks on end, discussing this life, death, and 
soon resurrection of Jesus Christ. They deny it all. They question, well, we don't even know if, if this is, if he even lived. Silliness. And in doing so, they deny the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. A Christ dying in the place of sinners. They're better than normal Christians. They call themselves progressive Christians. But you know, there are others out there who, you know, they denounce that foolishness. Um, and yet they'll mar the doctrine of the church on the authority of Scripture so long as they're able to twist Scripture's words to meet their agenda. There's more who will even take a solid stance on the doctrines of the church and yet they'll so corrupt the church to use her for their own selfish gain, setting themselves up as a pedestal within ministry. All of these, they're no different. With a smile, they're all attackers of Christ. Someone might say, Pastor, look, man, we're talking about Judas betraying Jesus. These events lead to the crucifixion. How do you get all of this out of this biblical narrative? And I just want to ask you to remember Paul's experience. He was literally on his way to destroy churches and church members, Christians, in the name of the Word of God, in the name of, of this people of God, and, and the calling of God, it was with a high stature that he did this. And yet whenever he encounters Christ, Jesus doesn't say, why are you doing church that way? It's misunderstood. You've misunderstood. Why did you misunderstand? No, he knocks him down, strikes him blind, and he says, why are you persecuting me? So what can we learn from this biblical narrative that we're in? I think we can see the deceptive nature of sin that greets with a kiss but is full of lies. That persecutes Christ and His church. So how do we combat all of this? What is our response? Do we draw swords and fight? Do we take our stand? I want to talk about weapons of godliness and I want to do so looking to our own passage. I think Jesus gives us a clear answer. We remember whenever he told them, sell, sell your cloak or tunic or whatever and go buy a sword, the one who doesn't have it. Go get one. They said, well, here's two. Is that good enough? He says, look, it's enough. Well, evidently they do have swords. They've taken these swords up and they ask, they're confused. We're about to be overtaken. This is the hour of darkness. And listen to their question. Do we now raise the sword? Do we smite them with the sword? Do we stand up? Do we with meek numbers like Gideon, are we going to overcome them with our small band of 11? To this, Jesus gives a resounding no. It is true that this is the hour he's going to the cross. He knows this is the hour. And so he calls them to stand down so that he may be taken by his captors. And, 
and endure what he alone could endure. But I think Jesus says more than this. He seems to remind, if we were to go to the other Gospels and we were to read this account in Matthew, we would see, look, whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword, is what he tells Peter. Uh, Jesus makes clear our ministry is not by the sword. I would argue that the Crusades were not by the command of Christ. Through history, Muslims still do this. Repent or die. We certainly preach that, but it's not by our hand. It's not by the sword. So are we then left desolate? We're just at the mercy of, of the evil of this world. Was Christ left helpless? Also, the answer is no. We have to go a bit further than just the surface of this text see this is an interesting transaction that that takes place here jesus rebukes rebukes them says look it's enough uh quit it i think is what he's telling them look that's enough rebuke you this isn't the nature of your ministry and then he turns and he gives a similar response to the people who come at him and yet he doesn't seem to get, have any expectation of anything less he doesn't offer them in rebuke but he calls out their cowardice have you come after me with swords and clubs i've been with you day in day out preaching in the temple and here you come at night. I've been right at your doorstep every day. Now you're going to come at night with swords and clubs, clubs, and a band of elders against me? It seems to highlight their cowardice. Too afraid to confront Jesus before his hearers in the daytime, they come at night with weapons. He doesn't expect any less, but little do they know they're waging a battle that cannot be won with swords and with clubs. John literally documents in, in his gospel, he documents them falling back before they come up to detain Christ. They literally fell to the ground in his account. We remember Jesus saying he could have legions of angels at his disposal if he would just simply request them. Legions of angels. We remember Elijah revealing the legions about the armies, you know, and how they just overcome. That's what Christ is saying. Listen, I could surround this place with an army of my own if I would only ask. So clearly, Jesus gives his life freely. As we think about the nature of this incoming kingdom, this kingdom of God that's being manifest in this hour of darkness, we reflect on the character of the battle that's being fought. In this hour that we're reading of, and in our hour today, if it's an individual battle you're going through or if it's this one that seems to be waged against Christians themselves as a whole in our nation, 
We shouldn't forget the God of this battle is the God that's been known to clog chariot wheels, to make walls crumble, to drive armies mad and kill themselves, to split seas and cause earthquakes, swallowing entire tribes, to send famine, bring floods, calm storms, and raise people from the dead. That's the God. This is the commander of our army, so to speak. It's a different sort of battle that we're in. It's not a win or lose battle. We know who wins. This is a battle for souls. Now we're certainly outfitted with weaponry and I think you know where I'm going. You're welcome to turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Look to verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds and therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You know, I read this, and so often what I hear is, oh yeah, gird gird up your loins, put on the breastplate, wield the sword, and yet I don't hear, gird yourself with truth, cover yourself in righteousness, don your salvation, wield your faith. Think of what these weapons are. We're drawn to the warlike imagery and not to the truth of what that looks like in our day. 
Paul's the one who wrote these words. He is a man who knew the nature of the fight. This is a war, no doubt. Even in his commission from Christ, Paul is told, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Our task is not to defeat the world, but to win the world to Christ. We don't do this with clever schemes or lies, but with the life-giving truth of an unadulterated gospel. When we see the glorified Christ in Revelation, his tongue is a sword. He opens his mouth and, and out comes that from the sword. It's the word of his truth. This is our weapon. This is what's being fulfilled in our study, reading of what Jesus is accomplishing in his suffering and in his resurrection. He gave himself willingly for sinners, dying at the hands of sinners, dying at the hands of those he came to save, accomplishing salvation for all who would trust in him, drawing all of his elect from dark to light. And so if you haven't believed in him, I'm gonna ask you today, believe, repent, Turn to him today. Tell your friends about this truth. Tell your children about this truth. Tell your grandchildren about this truth. Tell your parents. Tell your grandparents. Tell your co-workers. See that Christ has done this willingly of his own accord that salvation might be possible. This is why our ministry is not of swords. Now, we certainly don't shy away from this imagery of war, of slaying our enemies. But you know, what we have here is a word living, active, sharp as a two edged sword. We have got a, a sword that slaughters people in sin and yet grants spiritual life. Please don't think this means that you're powerless or that we don't have a fight on our hands. And this is certainly more than a story about how you struggle with your own sin. No. I think this is an equipping of saints for war. It's more than about your sin, but your sin affects. If we don't have that armor, if, we, if there is no righteousness in us, if we have not, if we're not yielding to this process of sanctification in our life, you're going to battle without a breastplate. 
It's okay to test to see if something's of God. And if you have questions, we've got to answer them. But you have got to come to the point, not where you're sitting there always testing God at every corner because then you have no faith in order to shield yourself from the attacks of the evil one. If, if, if you're always putting Christ to the test and you have not yet accepted him, there is no helmet of salvation. If you remain the skeptic or the wimpy Christian, then you have no sword or, or, or word of truth to wield among the enemy. And so, guys, we've got to come to this word and you've got to enter battle. You've got to enter battle with your children. who are sinners and need to be slain with this truth that they might experience salvation. You've got to wield battle with your co-workers who scoff at you in the break room or your stance on the issues of marriage or transgenderism, the abuse of children in our, in our day. Equip, equip yourselves. Jesus, it may have looked as if he was weak and yet he was equipping them. John says he was the light in the darkness. In him we become that light. If you don't know Christ... Look, I'm open. There's, uh, you're welcome to come forward. We can talk about this. We can hash out these truths. You know, but, but like any good soldier, these great men in, in battle, in, in the army, are broken. They're broken down. The better the warrior, the worse their training. Okay? And so you get, get broken and everything else, but I think there's got to come a point in, in which as I'm looking at people out here, I'm not talking to unbelievers. I'm talking to soldiers. I'm talking to some, some, some of you that's been in battle, that you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you thank God for that word, you thank God for that faith and that shield. You've seen it, you've tested it. I've prayed with men this week who are seasoned and are ready for death. And still cling to the same shield, the same breastplate, and the same sword. Oh, man. Oh. And yet there's some of you who just aren't useful soldiers at all. And we need to make ourselves useful. There are no, there are no deserters in the kingdom of God. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Him. Amen. And so look to Christ just as we sung in Christ alone. Look to Christ. If you don't know Him, look to Christ. If you are in a battle and you feel that the war is waged and you're by yourself, you know what? Fight it, wield the sword and look to Christ. Amen. He's enough. You don't, need, you don't need a whole band of soldiers. You don't need help in your trial. You need Christ in your trial. If you are doing well 
If you've lived a long life in Christianity, look to Christ. For you're almost there. The battle has been won. And you know what? As you're looking at the news and you see the battle before us, do not think, what do we do to prepare? What happens uh, when the persecution comes upon me? Look to Christ. You have it all. We often talk about dying for Christ and, yet, and we should be willing to die for Christ and, and yet there's an element in which you know, you should have already died in Christ. There's a way in which we watch the news and we watch the coming persecution. We watch people try to cancel every Christian university. We realize, you know what? The Christian cannot die. And so I just beseech you, everyone here, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Take up your sword that He's given us. Father, we come to You and we admit that we have looked for Your protection. We've begged for Your help. Father, we found ourselves beaten, battered. We found ourselves tested by sin. Lord, many of us feel as if we've been left in the training ground. And yet, as so many young men have experienced in the military, it's time for, for us to hear the words, training's over. God, that you would equip saints here in this church that are equipped for battle. Lord, that, that, that yield a sword of truth that would bring people to life in our community. That your church wouldn't be a morgue or a nursing home, but Father, that we would be ready, that this would be a trench of warfare where souls are saved. Lord, you've already given the promise to these apostles and to Peter himself by the point in our passage that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Lord, I pray among those here this morning, Lord, are you ready us to charge the gates of hell? And so God, I pray that you work, that you equip, that you surely grant us that breastplate of righteousness. Lord, that we're a people made holy, turned away from our sins, sure of our salvation, wielding the, the, the word in a way that engages and slays uh, the, the false and, and, and evil philosophies of the world. Lord, that our feet be clad with that, with the gospel that we take to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray this blessing from on high upon our missionaries in Honduras. 
who've given up everything in order to gain it all in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be useful in your hands. And God, if somebody is in the midst of the trial, if they are in the hour of darkness, Lord, that they meet Christ there. As we realize Christ endured a special hour of darkness that is not like some metaphorical hour of darkness in any one of our lives. But Lord, you have endured our sin. You have endured our trial. Lord, let us never forget the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Lord, as you go with us, equip us for this ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, we grow in relationships, we grow in Jesus Christ. Subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.